and welcome to this commentary for 1986's Evil Laugh, the uh, the meta uh, sort of post well no, post pre scream self referential slasher movie uh, that uh, does a lot of what uh, Scream did ten years later, and we'll be talking about that uh, in this low budget. Uh, but incredibly charming, fun slasher movie from the mid-1980s. We'll also be talking about um, the background and what the stars, well, stars in Vodacomas went on to do later on. Uh, also, some of the other horror movies of the mid-1980s, where the slasher movie was by uh, the middle of that decade. Uh, also, some of the controversies um, and also some of the fun background stories uh, to this movie. We are collectively, the hysteria continues, I'm Justin Kurzweil, the uh, author of the Slasher Movie book and also the webmaster of Hysteria Lives. I've been writing about Slasher Movies for almost a quarter of a century now. Even I can't believe that. But uh, I'm joined today, uh, as ever, by my co-host, Eric. Uh, do you have an evil laugh? No, because I'm such a nice person. Well, uh, well fun fact was, the evil laugh in this was actually uh, Dominic Brasquia, who was the uh, director of the movie so but um nathan uh, can i hear your evil laugh <laughs> well that's pretty good actually yeah maybe better yeah. than the one in the movie that's a little more of a cackle i'd say than than a laugh uh, yes yes indeed so uh um excellent and uh and uh finally but uh, by no means least uh, joseph uh uh let's hear your evil laugh yeah, it's not going to happen, Justin. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> We're not performing monkeys, Justin. Okay, well, fair enough. So, um, Evil Love, when was... Well, let's uh, start by, um, obviously, uh, if, you, if you've probably watched the movie before listening to this commentary, and if you haven't, then obviously suggest as ever, uh, watch the movie first, because obviously we will be spoiling the surprises in this movie, and there are a number of them. Um, but, um, I mean, my first time seeing this movie, I don't think it was ever released in the UK as far as I'm aware so probably going on for 20 15 20 years ago I kind of managed to track down the I think it was a Dutch VHS version and um, uh, back in the day in Holland they would release movies on VHS with um, in English with Dutch subtitles so it's an incredibly difficult movie to to see Um, I kind of guess was that the same for you Eric? Yeah, I'd see it on a bootleg in, I suppose, about 20 years ago. Not that long ago, really. But, uh, yeah, it was a bootleg copy for me. VHS. Could barely make out what was happening. And, uh, Joseph, I know that you're obviously you're aficionado of uh, the video stores back in the 80s. Is this Was this one that you rented often? Yes, I rented this in the very early 90s. Um, I can confirm that it was released in the UK. It was um, a clamshell release by Palace Explosive Video. And uh, interestingly enough, on the uh, box, it says a 1985 production. Ah, interesting. Well, it must have been, it's not one I came across uh, back then, but uh, interesting. So, uh, Nathan, how about you? Is this one you used to rent back in the day? Yes. And I love the artwork, the um, phantom looking killer with the battle axe behind the uh, girl. Um, and I was interested in, uh, when I read the back of the, uh, uh, VHS box and, uh, the magazine teen set says Friday the 13th meets the big chill. Would you guys agree? Yes. I saw that quote and it's on the VHS box as well. And, uh, yeah, let's go with it. Well, let's, I mean, let's, uh, discuss some of the cast. I mean, it's kind of more of a cameo appearance here as, uh, um, Gary Hayes as Jerry, who is the uh, is he kind of a surgeon or he's I mean the whole the whole 
I'm sure as you've seen the movie, the whole kind of uh, plot uh, as, as it is, is uh, this um, this guy buys this house, uh, which used to be an orphanage where a mass murder of children took place some years ago. Uh, and uh, and then he comes back and essentially bumped off within the first five minutes. So I guess he's kind of like the Janet Lee with the bleach blonde hair. I don't know if that's supposed to be a psycho reference. I don't know what his hair was like normally. It's very uh, interesting that the killer here decides to just leave his heart laying out. I mean, the killer would have no way of knowing that later they're like, oh, there's a heart out. Let's cook and eat it. Well, I did, didn't they? I, th I think it's because the delivery boy was turning up and he, he didn't couldn't bring a heart, but he didn't have the monkey brains or something as well, which um, to my vegan sensibilities is particularly horrific. But so I, th I kind of guess the killer um, somehow knew that they were into that kind of weird, wild kind of um, carnivore eating. Which is kind of very strange, kind of uh, the whole, th whole whole thing of that. It's, it's kind of a movie that sort of almost, it kind of plays into the supernatural at some point, which is never really expanded upon. Uh, and then you have these kind of hints, uh, the kind of cannibalism thing, which is kind of, you, you, you know, they do end up eating the heart at a dinner party later on, but it's, it's very much uh, a slasher movie. And obviously we'll talk about the pedigree of uh, the slasher movie and the people involved in it as we go along. Now, are you saying that there's a supernatural element because of the killer's teleporting abilities? Well, there's there's that, but also, isn't there? They, I mean, they hear the strange voices coming out the closet. That's the vent. And the tape recorder. Yeah. Come on, Justin, keep up. <laughs> but it certainly wasn't, I mean, it wasn't the only kind of slasher movie that would have played around with that kind of supernatural bent, as it were, because, I mean... There, you know, by 1986, um, when this was made, or perhaps it was 85, late 85 when it was made, um, a, you know, slasher movie, um, uh, you know, uh, always talk about the kind of golden era to be 1978 to 1984. And by 1986, um, there was definitely branching out, trying to look for different angles to keep the slasher movie. Uh, there's the skeleton, the, the meat around the bones really is um, uh, adding something different to it. Um, and also, a question for you. Do, you. do you view this movie as homoerotic? Yes. Yes. Very, uh, uh, there's a lot of shirtless men, uh, some very overt male nudity later from the character of Mark, who we see here. And a guy uh, grabbing another guy's butt. Yes. Yeah, Barney. Barney grabs the other d dude's uh, tuchus. Yeah, I just kind of wondered if it was um, how intentional it was, because I mean, it seems, I mean, this is like, um, oh, infamously, but the movie was shot very, very quickly between sort of uh, various accounts between seven and nine days, which is incredibly fast turnaround for a movie that actually, you know, looks pretty good. And this is kind of, I mean, let's not beat around the bush. I mean, this movie is, if you look at reviews online, um, a lot of people just simply don't get it. I um, mean, it was barely reviewed at uh, the time it was released. Uh, there's, um, most people think it's terrible. For me, I've always thought it was like, uh, you know, it's, for want of a better term, it's like a breezy um, slasher movie, like a fun. It's a slasher movie with a real sense of fun. It, you can tell uh, the cast were having a blast uh, making it. And talking of blasts, um, there is rumours uh, that I've seen floating around the internet that there was a blast on set of the most unfortunate kind when the septic tank exploded and covered, showered everyone in shit, basically. Now, whether or not that was... Uh, I've also seen it just happen because they had 40 people staying at a house out in the country 
that uh, plumbing wasn't designed for that amount of effluence um, and uh, it, it just overflowed. But I kind of preferred the story of the exploding septic tank. It kind of, uh, yeah, it's uh, what a blast, literally. And you, and you give us that story as we see the image of the character of Johnny urinating on this biker. Hmm. I hope nobody's having their lunch. Yeah, it's kind of, yeah, I, it's definitely, the whole movie is kind of tongue-in-cheek, isn't it? I mean, there's no two ways about it. It's not taking itself particularly seriously. Um, I, you know, I, I mean, we'll talk about, I mean, obviously, what the biggest comparison that people, when you look up about this movie, is the comparison to uh, Wes Craven and uh, Kevin Williamson's Scream, which was released 10 years after this. And um, as with many kind of mainstream critics and people looking at movies like this, they kind of tend to sort of see something like Scream as if it kind of evolved from a chrysalis like uh, fully formed with no influences. But there are some startling uh, uh, similarities between this movie and Scream with that kind of post. Um, uh, kind of a post kind of slasher movie boom uh, self-referential kind of uh, movie making uh, no more so than with the character of Barney um, but of course what other what you know for any great 80s slasher movie you're going to have fun bubbly characters and we talked a lot about how kind of modern slasher movies and modern horror movies tend to make their characters very unlikable um, but would you agree that this this is a movie with a kind of a likable cast yeah, in the first half. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite character is on screen as we speak, and that's um, uh, what? What's the character's name? The blonde hair, Tina. She reminds me very much of PJ Souls and Heidi Kozak from Slumber Party Massacre Two and Friday the Thirteenth Part Seven. Uh, I just think she's hilarious, and her death scene later is, for me, possibly one of the highlights. It always makes me chuckle. Yeah, and again, compared yeah. to Scream. Because there's a um, you know scene yes. in Scream where she thinks the killer is just messing with her. Yeah, it's a complete yeah. Rose McGowan's death in, in Scream is very similar indeed. I mean, even the killer in um, Evil F resembles the killer in Scream with the black garb and the the face that's kind of white. It resembles that father death death costume a bit. It kind of reminded me. I know you've, you've seen the uh, the film, The Final Girls, from about five, six years ago, uh, and there's a character called Tina in that, who's the kind of the blonde bimbo, um, sort of not too bright character, who's kind of. Uh, and I did wonder if it was a tribute to Tina in uh, in uh, Evil Laugh. I might be stre- It might be a bit of a stretch. And you know, Tina has that Fonzie touch. Well, if you see enough of these movies, I mean, they all kind of, the characters start to blend together, so they might remind you of someone. Who knows? And there's some interesting uh, background on about Joe D. Gibson, which I'm sure we'll come on to uh, a little bit later. And also, the other person we're seeing there is uh, Kim McCammy, uh, again, uh, uh, somebody who has a very interesting background, uh, which we'll talk about. Who kind of um, uh, kind of moves into being in uh, the movie's final girl? I think she'd been. I think she'd been in Dave Dakota's uh, Dream Maniac the year before, and she'd been in a number of kind of kind of low-budget kind of horror slasher movies like Creepazoids and sort of Lunch Meat. Um, but yeah, she went on to have a, a very uh, different type of career, which again we'll definitely kind of cover uh, when we get to it. But uh, uh, we also have uh, the characters here. The kind of the uh, this is something you didn't see that often, apart from it kind of reminds me of the um, the yuppies at the beginning of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Yeah. 
That's what I got. I got that vibe here from them as well. I love their hats. Yes, it's that kind of matching kind of what do you call that kind of flat cap, isn't it? Which was which yeah. was a which was a fashion statement for yuppies for a moment in the mid nineteen eighties. Um, uh, Tony Griffin is sort of plays the Sammy, who's the uh, kind of the um, the main sort of yuppie, well, the yuppie guy. Um, and I was looking up, he was the the, the son of um, famed crooner Merv Griffin, who who sung "I've Got a Lovely Bunch of Coconuts," which was a nice little touch. Um, and uh, he was kind of in quite a few things around this time, sort of uh, sort of in the sort of um, sort of late eighties into um, early well nineties, early two thousands, like Spaceballs, uh, Drop Zone, Squint. Um, and I think he's kind of he kind of retired from acting and into I think he's he's doing uh, into screenwriting and also kind of growing wine in uh, in California. I don't know if you grow wine as such. Well, not grow wine. No, I drink wine, <laughs> lots of wine. But no, I mean grow grapes and grow has grapes. vineyards. Yes. So I thought um, grapes grew on trees. No vines. Oh, okay. Well, I'm not a um, plant person. I don't know what they're called. That's not what I've heard. <laughs> Partaking, but um, I just mentioned the 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 yuppie of yuppie girl Betty is Karen O'Brien, who again uh, had a really interesting kind of post career to to this, uh, um, which we'll talk about uh, sort of um, uh, a little bit later. Now, interestingly, I mean, we talk about the release of the movie, but the movie got um, uh, did get cinema release in the UK, and actually some of the old cinema ads I found. Um, uh, for its kind of regional release, were of this guy, which was Tom Shell's delivery boy, being um, uh, being sort of tied to the chair, which because of an interesting uh, image for a slasher movie, which usually um, would advertise itself with a killer and a scant- scantily uh, clad young woman, which is actually the kind of the artwork uh, you've most normally seen for this movie. Uh, or one of them, um, but uh, yeah. So I mean, what I read—I uh, don't know if you guys came across this bit of information as well—was that this wasn't originally in the original movie. No, it was filmed afterwards at the insistence of the producers to get a murder in earlier into the film, and to bump up the murder quotient. And um, the postscript at the end of the film as well was another one that was put in by the by the producers' insistence. Right, yeah. And uh, just right quick, I did love that as the killer's coming at him with the drill, he says, I don't think this is cool. (laughs) It's a great, you know, way of looking at your impending death. Yeah. Well, just as we don't, I mean, again, he's more of a cameo for Tom Tom Shell in this this movie. Um, uh, He... He's kind of acting in quite a few things as well. Uh, again, sort of this kind of kind of movie. He was acting things like Zero Boys. Uh, was also in Hard Rock Nightmare, um, which was the kind of follow-up to this movie by the director, uh, Beverly Hills Vamp, uh, Teenage Exorcist, and uh, now is a kind of director of such fantastic-sounding TV movies as a Sorority Sister Killer, uh, The Pom Pom Murders, and Deadly Seduction. So all from the last couple of years. Uh, and also, he was a kind of production manager on uh, kind of relatively big shows like the uh, the redo of Magnum PI. So uh, yeah, so he kind of went on to have a, a career even after dying uh, very very quickly in this, and all being brought back to die in this. You're talking about the cinema release here in the states, at least. Um, uh, Cinevest Entertainment uh, they they were the distributors behind this for uh, 
they, uh, they, they did a lot of, um, you know, low budget war dramas on VHS and they did stuff like night, the anthology night terror and the nostril picker from 1993. And this is, I found this funny. Uh, they even rocked out with Alan Parsons, but not the project in 1997 with the, uh, Alan Parsons and intimate evening. But from what I could gather, uh, they shifted focus away from these kind of genre efforts. And, um, in the mid nineties, they started releasing primarily IMAX content, uh, specifically of the Nature is Beautiful variety. And um, I think one of the movies they released is one of the highest grossing uh, kind of IMAX nature movies of all time. It's something to do with, um, God, this makes me sound like I didn't do my research at all, but I I forgot to jot down the name. But uh, in the mid-90s, they had one that was released and it grossed like $86 million, which is the highest number for that type of film so far. This actor here, the real estate agent, is played by Howard Weiss. Now, they actually had a really interesting story about how he pretty much bought his role in the movie. He offered them a large sum of money to be in the film. And when the time came, um, he goes up to the director and he's just like, I got good news and bad news. The good news or the bad news is I don't have the money. But the good news is I can still star in your movie. (laughs) <laughs> and it didn't really play well for them. So um, the director took it to uh, Stephen Mayo um, and <clears throat> they're like, no, you need to put up something. Thank you very much, Mr. Burns. So do you think that's why they murdered him with machete through his crotch and out his backside? Do you think that may be in a sort of payback? That, that could have been, you know, it's like you get the most painful death in the movie. Mm. That murder, of course, was also in Just Before Dawn. Less comedically handled in that film. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, there is the scene where his wife, um, spoiler alert, his wife is the killer. And there is that scene where she's making fun of him in bed, so maybe she's just like, I'm going to take him out this way. Well, talking of the uh, cinema release, I mean, from what the, the film was, um, it's, it's got 1986, I mean, it has 1986 written all over it. I mean, I would have been 17 in 1986, so I remember uh, this look all too well. Um, but it didn't get a release until um, uh, 1988 to cinemas, uh, kind of kind of pre-coming out on video, and it came out on video, I think, December of 1988. Um and from what I can see, the only uh, the only things I can see was that it was released um, regionally to the Baltimore area, um, and also in the March of 1988, and also in uh, North Carolina uh, at drive-ins on a double bill with Neon Maniacs. It was also released to uh, uh, also released to Newport News, Virginia, as well. There's I saw an advert for that. Okay. Well, I just wondered, um, I mean, there seems to be a few connections with North Carolina, because I know um, uh, uh, Kim McCammy is kind of, uh, she is from North Carolina, and uh, um, uh, Stephen Byers, uh, he's, um, he, his family home was there as well. So I wonder if there's more connections to North Carolina. I mean, it's one of the things that it's clearly a movie. I mean, the palm trees give it away that this was filmed outside of uh, LA, um, and there was—I mean, there was so many um, slasher movies made in the hills above LA back in the 1980s. You can—you can half imagine film crews bumping into each other as they made them, but uh, it's kind of quite un, uh, unmistakable. Again, talking about the um, 
the cinema release. It, it actually ran from March until July, so it had a four-month uh, regional window, which is pretty impressive for a film of this uh, budget and type. Mm. Well, it apparently made. I mean, I don't know what the box office was, but apparently made a very tidy profit because the the you know a film that was shot essentially over a week. Um, for very little money, um, you know, went on to uh, make a tidy profit for its investors. Certainly, I mean, the budget was around a hundred thousand, which mm. is, you know, definitely low budget for sure. Yeah, if you look at uh, Dominic Brace's one of his uh, his defunct uh, website from way back in the nineties, probably, um, he says the film was shot in nine days, and he said it turned a hefty profit, but he did not elaborate on the figures all he was all he said on his website was go see the movie and see if you think it reminds you of scream which i thought was funny but of course um is it there's nothing out there um as well is another film that predates scream but it, it postdates evil laugh and uh, that did a similar thing with a character who's kind of aware that he's possibly slap bang in the middle of a horror film yeah, because it was very different from the um, the kind of comedy horror that kind of kind of coincided or came very quickly after the start of the slasher movie boom, um, sort of post Halloween mm. and post Friday the Thirteenth. Uh, whereas movies like Student Bodies, uh, Pandemonium, um, th- those kind of those kind of movies were more kind of airplane uh, flavored, weren't they? Yeah, goofy parodies rather than um, sort of like this idea of this kind of postmodern thing. I mean, certainly their films have done this, done this kind of thing before. Um, and, uh, you know, the, I mean, so the idea that Scream invented it is kind of uh, it's not, it's not exactly laughable. I mean, in fact, I, ironically, well, perhaps not ironically, Friday 13th Part 6, um, which was released in uh, 1986 as well, um, which would have been come out two years before this was actually finally released. I mean, that you could argue that was very much kind of self-referential um, uh, all the way through it. Uh, uh, there's kind of a, there's a knowing quality to it. And I think it's kind of, it's just like an attitude or a kind of response to, you know, uh, that everyone by the mid-1980s knew exactly what a Friday 13th movie was. They knew exactly what a slasher movie was. Um, and so because the audience was so uh, so kind of, aware of the rules um, that already uh, quickly cemented with the slash movie and it's kind of the tropes um, that the audience could have fun by having this kind of um, kind of self-referential uh, sort of look at uh, you know sort of a reflective look at itself um, uh, and also uh, but actually also work as a slasher movie I mean this isn't a scary slasher movie and I don't think it's necessarily trying to be scary and also the special effects I think the the filmmakers admitted that uh, the um, they just didn't have the budget to do particularly effective special effects and when you think of course the Raisin Dietra of the Friday 13th series is certainly the first one and uh, um, uh, the subsequent ones as well obviously after all the battles of the MPAA but um, were the the death scenes, um, so uh, the more you know elaborate kind of uh, murder sequences, and you have the fun murder sequences in this, but they certainly aren't going to give Tom Savini sleepless nights. No, he was busy working on um, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre too, which you mentioned before. I mean, the the certainly the bigger profile slasher movies of 1986 were going with the comedy angle if you think of Friday the 13th part 6 as you said and April Fool's Day and Texas Chainsaw 2 I suppose um, they felt they had to kind of reinvent themselves slightly so they 
put shoehorned in. Well, shoehorned in. They they put in the the comedy angle. I think Jason Lives for me is probably the most successful hybrid of the comedy horror slasher. Um, so you know it was a, a reaction, as you said, to the you know the slasher movies of the early eighties, kind of burning themselves out to a degree. Um, so. Yeah, most of the slashers coming out in 1986 seem to be going with a slight comedy edge to them. And this one's no different, of course, um, being probably more overtly comic than any of the others. It was, yeah, especially yeah. the microwave scene. Hmm. Yeah, and uh, the dance. Have we seen the dance montage yet? Nope, it's coming up, though. Yeah. Um, yes, here it comes. I love this scene. Because they were actually listening to Girls Just Want to Have Fun by Cindy Lauper. Uh, but of course, you know, that would probably have been way too expensive for them to use in the film. Um, and there was no choreography. Everything was just... Improvised, yes. You can't, you can't tell, can you? Moonwalking? Wow. I, I don't seen... know if the cleaning is very uh, thorough, though. No. No, it seems to be, fo- they seem to be focusing on just one tile. <laughs> I, I have seen this reference as the whitest dance uh, sequence ever. <laughs> but uh, I don't know if he was joking, but uh, Dominic Brassia said, uh, Brassia, sorry, he said that uh, uh, he w- thought that this could be lifted and put it onto MTV as a video. As like a promo pop video for the movie? Yeah. Mm. Well, it would make me, it would make, it would work for me. I'm not sure about the general populace, though. No, we. It's the vocals are by a kind of slightly mysterious uh, lady called Heather Alcantar, which we could find no information about at all. But uh, I'm right in thinking there was uh, there was someone else that was up for the gig apparently. Yeah, yeah. They they mentioned that Cheryl Crow, an unknown at the time, Cheryl Crow, um, was uh, in the running to do the theme song, but they went with the with Heather instead. Um, yeah. So I think this would have been about maybe seven or eight years before Cheryl Crow made her breakthrough. Of course, becoming one of the biggest stars of the 90s. That would have been quite a coup in retrospect. It would have been. It would have been. So, um, I mean, this is what, I mean, this the, for me, this is kind of like the heart of the movie. I mean, it's kind of, it's almost um, when the murders start happening, people start dying off. Obviously, you want that in a slasher movie. But it's this kind of, it's so charming. And you can tell the, the cast is just having a blast. They don't look embarrassed. They look like they're having fun. What's this What's this thing he has in his hand? I'm, I'm too young. I don't understand what it is. Oh, what, the Ghetto Blaster? It's a boombox, Eric. Cassettes are making a comeback in the same way vinyl did in more recent years. Yeah, anyone's, anyone who's walked home um, from the pub when you're 17 years old with a Sony Walkman, the batteries are running low. You know the pain, so don't, don't fall for it, kids. Yeah. You know, they kind of forget about this tape. Like, I would definitely be like, okay, I need to get back inside. I want to hear what's on this buried tape in the fireplace. <laughs> the whole setup of this idea that you kind of got this this kind of mansion that's, um, which were, had this massacre and the, the whole MacGuffin, like kind of red herring of Martin as being this kind of killer's kind of returned um, is, uh, is kind of interesting. And again, it doesn't really go anywhere, but it obviously gives that kind of sleight of hand with the actual killer's motivation. I mean, I, I did read that um, uh, the uh, the investors wanted more, say they wanted the more murders at the beginning, said the killing of the delivery boy, but their initial idea was um, to actually do a flashback to Martin murdering babies. Um, and uh, the, uh, the they'd said, no, they didn't want to do that. So not even in silhouette. So, so you know, it, 
they were quite happy to go a little bit bad taste, but not too bad taste. Maybe murdering babies in the mid 80s was a little bit uh, beyond the pale. And a bit out of place in a horror comedy. Yes, yeah, no, I, I agree, I agree. So uh, it's not like this is um, Seven or a film like of of that intensity where it might fit in slightly better. No, 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 exactly. And also, it'd actually be um, the, what they did do with the, the murder of Delivery Boy is is much would have much been much easier to film as well, and sort of much quicker to film. Because if you think about the murder of the Delivery Boy, the killer really has no reason to kill him. It's not like he has anything to do with reopening this house. He's just dropping off groceries. Poor guy. The emphasis on the gross, and he's you know dropping off livers and hearts and brains. Yeah. If you ask me, he deserved to die then. <laughs> yeah. And I was going to say, uh, if I were them, I would honestly be very annoyed at Jerry because um, he's the one opening this house and he's not helping them whatsoever. Now, I know he's dead, but they don't know that. You could have a drinking game for every time a character says, well, when's Jerry going to get here? Where's Jerry? I mean, uh, but... I would think I would be a lot more suspicious. Uh, the fact that he's never around, I would be very concerned about that. But they have excuses throughout the whole movie. Oh, we probably forgot something. Oh, we probably went to town. But it's as in every uh, sort of teen slasher movie, and I use the word teen uh, in inverted commas here because most of the cast are in their late 20s, early 30s. Uh, I think Barney, the guy who plays Barney, was 32 when he when he made this. 34 which is even worse <laughs> yeah well he was um i mean it's kind of you know the, the the whole sex and death is kind of like the twin pillars of the slasher movie and so i guess jerry plays second fiddle when the hormones start raging you know this prank is really funny but he did ruin that bed that i mean has he pushed the knife up through the mattress or is it um is is there a gap in the mattress is it too much that's pushed together Oh, I don't know. I always assumed that he, like, tore a hole in the bed. <laughs> yeah, that is, yeah, that's not cool. No. What would Jerry think? Mm. Well, this scene right here is kind of like, um, isn't it like the haunting? Like, I'm not grabbing your hand or Evil Dead 2. Uh, I'm not holding your hand. One of those kind of gags. But instead of a hand, it's the guy's ass. Mm. What I like about this scene is that Mark thinks it's really kinky to have somebody squeeze his bottom. I mean, he's quite. That's quite vanilla. <laughs> well, he's just meant to be the jock character, isn't he? I don't think there's much personality going on there. Although, I arguably, um, uh, he's he's the one character in the movie uh, that uh, the camera lingers on his nakedness uh, more than any other. Mm. But he, the, the, this character is Miles O'Brien. Is that his name? Um, now, his career subsequent to this seemed to involve being in a lot of those sort of straight video erotic thrillers from the 90s with titles like scorned 2 and sexual roulette so um you know the fact that he's quite willing to take his clothes off and evil laugh you know makes sense then when you see what he did after this you know i read a funny story as well about uh behind the scenes after um you know or during the sex scene um, they would have people come over and you know cover them up. And of course, Jody Gibson uh, was very open, you know, about herself, very, um, you know, very cool with the nudity and everything. 
And after a couple of times of them bringing a robe over to cover her up, she was like, you know, I don't need this. And she would just walk around topless between takes. <laughs> I also, I saw the story of, um, uh, it's sort of uh, Miles O'Brien, who's, uh, he, uh, someone, um, he was on a set of NCIS, uh, the TV show. And uh, someone uh, joked um, that uh, he was st- standing the, the the cast and someone joked, uh, they remember you from Evil Laugh. And then he kind of quit back. I wouldn't have been, oh my God, not, I wouldn't have been allowed on set. So um, <laughs> there's obviously sort of like, I've seen that they, it seems like many of the um, the cast uh, that are still with us are still have uh, kind of looked back at this film with some embarrassment, but also kind of good humour as well, which is always nice to see because that's not, sometimes that's not always the case with people that have been in horror slasher movies in the 80s. I mean, there was a long period of time where many people, most of them, a lot of them involved with the Friday the 13th franchise would, would um, uh, try and probably distance themselves from the movies. And of course now, with the advent of the uh, the, um, the kind of the big uh, kind of shows, um, um, what they're called, um, conventions. Yeah, of course, conventions. Uh, although I don't know if there will be an evil laugh convention. Probably not. I don't know if there ever has been one, but sadly... Well, not, not, not a convention dedicated solely to Evil Laugh, but I'm sure at a ho- general horror convention there could be a, a like a little table for Evil Laugh that would generate some interest. Here we have the uh, fun dinner sequence where they're basically eating Jerry. Mm, and his Rocky Mountain oysters. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, I didn't know what that was. Even when they do the moo, I still didn't know, so I had to look it up. I guessed when they did the move, but I just Googled it anyway just to confirm. I'm wondering if this is the moment the septic tank exploded. While they're in the kitchen? Well, it said from what, again, I, again, I don't know how embellished it was, but apparently they said it got uh, these, um, the cast and crew were covered in feces from the septic tank uh, and all their food was as well. So, uh, again, whether or not that's just an urban legend, I don't know, but it kind of adds a bit of colour to the movie, certainly. As if liver and brains couldn't get any more disgusting. Yeah. Ugh. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of, I mean, it's a, it's a strange kind of interlude, isn't it? This bit, this whole idea of this kind of, they're eating the heart of, of Jerry and they don't know it. And then they never find out either, I don't think. I don't think the killer's uh, lets on. Uh, but, uh, but I mean, let's talk a bit about some of the, um, uh, some of the cast uh, and the crew, some of the backgrounds, because we talked about... Um, uh, Jodie Gibson as Tina. Now she has an interesting sort of story. Post this, um, she uh, became quite infamous um, after being uh, arrested as a Hollywood madam. I mean, this is all kind of sadly. She passed away earlier this year in 2022, uh, time recording. Um, uh, but I mean, all this is kind of recorded fact. She kind of, after being in this uh, movie uh, in the sort of late 80s, she moved to, well, she's probably already in Hollywood, but she set up a modeling agency, um, which became a kind of escort agency. Uh, and uh, she got arrested um, uh, and served 22 months imprisonment in the Central California Women's Facility. Um, I, interestingly, she said, um, uh, just a quote from, I mean, she, she wrote a number of books about this, uh, her life and uh, kind of what happened. Um, and from her own website, uh, she used to record under the, the title Baby Doll uh, as a recording artist uh, on her defunct website. But it's, I found this uh, 
uh, a short paragraph and she said for 13 years i owned and operated one of the largest and most exclusive escort services in the world spanning over 16 states in the united states and europe while ruling the evenings as a hollywood super madam known only as sasha i serviced the sexual secrets of the rich and famous employing over 300 girls and catering to over a thousand clients even Heidi Fleiss had, co had to come to work for my service in 1990 before ultimately going out on her own, leading to her arrest in 1993. There was no sexual scenario I did not orchestrate or delegate. Um, so you have to wonder if she um, did any, had any uh, arse grabbing going on. I read also that she, uh, her mother, uh, ran a talent agency that discovered a young Tom Cruise. Um, but my favourite fact about her is that she claims that she once had a jam session with Echo and the Bunnymen in a club in London. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. She was, uh, I did see some stuff with her and also she uh, she had some fun with, um, uh, as one of the other, uh, I think she wrote on, uh, I wrote a message to uh, Johnny Venecour, who's coming up as uh, Freddy, a kind of a kind of cameo appearance, and um, uh, sort of mentioned uh, that uh, about uh, evil laugh, and they had a bit of a laugh about it. Uh, so again, you know, looking back at this with fondness. Now, are the Rocky Mountain oysters? Are they belonging to? Jerry or the delivery boy or are they actually a bull's testicles do we know what do we think hmm. well wow the killer would go to a lot of trouble if the killer's you know using human um, balls yeah <laughs> are we really talking about oysters and balls in the same sentence <laughs> well that's what they're eating yeah. <laughs> oh here's chief cash I love chief cash what uh, mid-80s slasher movie about a butterball sheriff? Uh, you know, what would it be like? I mean, it's, are there any thin sheriffs in slasher movies? That's what I want to know. Hmm. Ironically, ironically, maybe Scream. He's not, like, heavy. He's yeah. not, like, thin, but he's not heavy. And isn't um, the sheriff in the My Bloody Valentine remake a, a, a dreamy TV pin-up type? That is true. Well, that's not the 80s, so... Yeah, true. But it's a, it's kind of certainly a slasher movie trope from the 80s is having that butterball sheriff, which are kind of, of course is fantastic, although probably not very good at chasing the killer. But um, the actor here is Hal Schaefer, um, and he was in uh, a few other titles um, like Barfly, uh, The Squanderers, and a film called Hammerdown, which I'm not familiar with. I think Barfly is the one with Jack Nicholson and Faye Dunaway. No, it's, Bar it's Barfly Mickey Rourke. Oh, is it? I'm thinking of a different film. Sorry. Apologies. Yes. No, I think you're right. Because it's strange. I mean, this whole kind of monologue he gives about the delivery boys, and it's sort of saying he's looking for him. He's run away before, and not to worry, and don't you know? It's and then there's this whole thing of the um, uh, he's got uh, Freddy uh, watching the place with binoculars. I I was a little bit confused with that. Is there? Uh, they're staking out the house because maybe they're just making sure that there's no uh, funny business going on. Well, I mean, if this place was the if this place was the site of a murder ten years ago, I assume. And it's been closed that long. I assume somebody would want to check on it just to make sure that there's... I mean, it's a slasher movie. Of course, there's going to be like a 10-year-later coda, and they're going to go, someone's going to go look at it. And also somebody, I mean, obviously the killer, has been painting Stay Away on 
you know, the house and the for sale sign. So somebody doesn't want that house opened. Well, it's kind of that again, that's there's lots of uh, sort of references back to the Friday the 13th uh, franchise, isn't there? And essentially, as we find out, the real realtor's wife is the killer. And because she was the mother of Martin, who was wrongly accused, apparently, of abusing the children and then going on a killing spree. Uh, so she's punishing people returning to kind of the site of the crime, which is very Mrs. Voorhees, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So presumably the stay out is is her trying to warn people to, just in the same way as uh, uh, Pam Voorhees did, by poisoning the water at Camp Crystal Lake and trying to stop the, the, uh, the, um, the site being reopened. It's kind of pushing pushing her over the edge into a killing spree. And, you know, here we have the most intelligent character in the film, uh, Freddie, who literally sees somebody in the chief's back seat and then decides to just walk up there and check it out. <laughs> so is the actor Johnny Venecourt, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, that had been in uh, Savage Streets uh, with Linda Blair and also Lord of Illusions? Um, he kind of went on to, he actually studied at the Lee Strasberg Institute in New York for acting, although you may not uh, necessarily realise that in Devil Laugh. Hmm, harsh. Well, I kind of, I, it's a fun performance, but uh, it's, uh, um, I'll, I'll stand by that. But uh, yeah, he kind of, um, he's went on to be kind of a celebrity acting coach. Um, and uh, he kind of worked with uh, Scott uh, Bayo. Bayo? Is it Bayo or Bayo? It's Bayo. Bayo, yeah, Scott Bayo on uh, 45 and Single, uh, and also was behind quite a few um, reality TV shows. And just a little bit of uh, slasher synchronicity, he was also on um, on a radio show with Danny Bonaducci, who, of course, um, had his head put through a, t- a television set in Deadly Intruder. Spoiler alert. Another 80 slasher movie. And Johnny Vanneker, or however you pronounce his name, is uh, he also plays the killer in certain scenes because they have different people dressed up as the killer at various points to kind of throw you off. And, you know, in an interview, they would they mentioned that he was really bad about getting his face in the shot, which they didn't want to, you know, to see the killer's like face or anything, uh, even with the mask on in certain scenes. They just wanted to see the killer, you know, from the neck down. But, you know, Johnny was an actor, so of course he wanted to get some screen time. Can you hear me? And who can blame him? Um, yeah. he, he, was uh-huh. al- he was also, I think he was assistant producer on this, and he, because it was yeah. the, um, it, it was uh, Stephen uh, Bio and uh, Dominic Brassier and, um, <clears throat> and uh, uh, this guy were kind of, uh, uh, it was kind of a joint production um, with a company called Wildf- Wildfire Productions, which I could find absolutely nothing out about at all, unfortunately. Um, so, um, so uh, yeah, so, I mean, he was definitely, he was very much more involved behind the scenes. As you mentioned, he kind of shadowed the killer, played the killer in some scenes and also did sort of behind the scenes things, which is not uncommon on a kind of very low budget slasher movie from the 80s. You know, they wrote the role of Freddy specifically for him. He also went on to be a producer. Well, all three of them reteamed really for Hard Rock Nightmare, which is the the film they did after this, which is another slasher movie that pushes its supernatural angle a bit further than this one does. Um, that's all I'll say. I won't spoil it for anyone. But uh, the, one of the producers on this actually, um, I have to have his name written down somewhere. Uh, he uh, pro- also produced a film called Hard Rock Zombies before this, confusingly. Um, 
but uh, he had nothing to do with hard rock nightmare. Chris, uh, Krishna Shah is the producer's name. He also produced uh, Sleepaway Camp 4, The Survivor, which I haven't seen still to this day. But is that the one that's supposed to be really bad? Nathan? It's basically just unreleased footage. It's not a full movie. That Someone cobbled it all together to make a... I mean, you could barely call it a movie. Um, okay, so... basically a collection of scenes. I mean, only if you want to see, you know, someone wander around in the woods a lot. <laughs> As she's not going to be on screen for much longer, uh, although we don't actually see her death scene, uh, Karen O'Brien as Betty... Uh, she was in a number of uh, kind of uh, films uh, around this time, and she uh, she went on uh, her first audition. Actually, was for a film called Private Resort with Johnny Depp, um, and she was on sort of uh, a lot of t- TV uh, sort of shows around this time, like A Team, Family Ties, uh, uh, sort of movies like that. And apparently, she was a single mother and decided to uh, move into uh, commercial act- acting to spend more time for her kids, but. Most interestingly is that she um, she jacked it all in uh, and uh, was basically a kind of hot foots around the world um, photographing in war zones and uh, and uh, kind of uh, highlights um, human rights issues. So uh, she said she found her calling card in the refugee camps of the Kosovo War in 1999. Um, so on her website, uh, she says, from staying in a crack house in Zurich bribing police officers in Albania, attempting to be smuggled into Libya uh, and talking at my way into prisons and jumping off moving trains. So, uh, yeah, from evil laugh to uh, kind of uh, sort of, um, you know, one of the world's most respected uh, reportage uh, sort of uh, uh, photographers from war zones and other kind of um, essaying other human rights issues. So, yeah, kind of an interesting career tra- trajectory for her. Why do you think that the killer drove home um, to hang out with her husband for just a little bit, only to drive back to the house. I kind of guess it's kind of uh, nobody has a theory. It's a they call it a red herring. Uh, I also I do wonder. Enough, if that's also a fish. <laughs> that is indeed. But I do wonder if they if they kind of came up with uh, the identity of the killer at the last moment, which certainly wouldn't have been uh, you know unusual in a, in a slasher movie. Yeah, because I'm pretty sure when I I was pretty sure that when I saw this for the first time, I thought Connie was going to be the killer well connie does I mean, she does yeah. seem mm-hmm. very invested in like the story of the house yeah and she sort of goes off on on tangents and little soliloquies about martin and that so i thought okay she's probably the killer but oh was i wrong wouldn't you be annoyed if you turned up to this house uh, thinking you're going for a fun um, weekend of dancing in short shorts and listening to 80s um pop music and sort of cleaning uh, that you were in the murder house. Well, I'd be more upset if I'd be more upset about having to do all the cleaning and hard work. Yeah, without <laughs> the guy there that they're there to help. Yeah, I can imagine Eric singing, "I'm overworked." Yes, oh, I, love, I need a break. I love that song. Yeah. Yeah. Well, can we talk a little bit more about the, um, I guess, the scream kind of uh, comparisons? Because I was watching this and I was trying to determine, you know, if, if this was the first of its type. And I don't think it is. I mean, early examples, you have the TV movie Fantasies from 1982 that kind of blurred the lines between fiction and reality. And it had that hint of being in on the joke. 
Um, and you mentioned Jason lives and one of the character in that film says, uh, any weirdo wearing a mask is never friendly. Um, but also Dominic Brescia, he appeared in rush week a few years later, uh, which featured, you know, that blink and you'll miss them, you know, sight gags like the Hills have eyes poster. And, um, you know, at the time, theatrically, you had films like Fright Night and The Monster Squad with characters who read Fango magazines and they got all their knowledge from cinema and that's how they live their lives. But I think the one thing that you can accuse um, Kevin Williamson of is, uh, like we said, cribbing from the Barney character. And it's the two different tropes, the genre savvy and the genre blindness. I mean, uh, Randy and Barney, uh, they're in that genre savvy side. You know, they've seen enough of these movies to sidestep to conventions, but they're both unaware that they're part of a movie. And then the rest of the characters kind of, you know, they're they're on the other end of the spectrum with a, the genre blindness trope. They don't know anything about these films. So I think, um, you know, I don't think this was the first of its type, but I think it probably was the first to do that kind of, you know, that split down the middle with one single character who knows everything, but the others don't. I mean, that's kind of obvious from my research that, you know, at least Kevin Williamson got that idea from this film. Cause I don't remember that ever happening in a film earlier than this. No, no, it's interesting. Cause I, I mean, the other film, you know, from 1986, April Fool's day, uh, the Fred Walton movie, um, that kind of plays with slash movie expectations, um, but kind of confounds them. So, uh, so it does it in a completely different type of way by actually kind of pulling the rug from under the audience uh, at the end of the movie with like a twist which I won't mention if you've not seen it. So with this, it is very much playing, um, uh, it, it kind of is groundbreaking in, in a lot of ways. And I think some they probably just thought it was a jape and just a bit of a throwaway thing. Um, but I'm sure the makers of this would have loved to have seen some of the cash that they, um, that, you know, if they'd, if, they, if they'd hit the right notes in 1986 and this had gone on to be a massive screen franchise, that would have been a tight franchise, that would have been interesting. But I mean, I'm mean, talking about Barney, the, the character. I mean, he he also seems to be inspired for to me. He seems very much inspired by the Shelley character in Friday Thirteenth Part Three. Mm, yeah, he has, and he is he has very similar eyes and a, maybe a, a smaller, less outrageous afro as well. Um, I was just thinking about Friday the Thirteenth Part Three that you know that you mentioned because there's a character in that that reads Fangoria as well, and they they sort of stumble upon a Tom Savini article, which is kind of a a nod and a wink to the audience in that. Um, I don't like the way Barney is holding his copy of Fangoria. It's it, you know, folding it in the middle like that is a big no-no for me with collectible magazines. Um, that issue he has is issue number forty-five, which was uh, published in May of nineteen eighty-five. So certainly the film was not made any earlier than the summer of eighty-five. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, yeah, the actor who plays Barney is Gerald Pearson or Pearson. Um, uh, he was also he's in a number of uh, other movies around this time of films like Access Code. Um, he was also in the uh, the kind of the uh, another film that kind of confounds slasher expectations, which is uh, Tag: The Assassination Game from 1982, which um, uh, which has Linda Hamilton in it in a very early role. Uh, of course, went on to fame a couple of years later in in The Terminator. Uh, whereas that it's kind of set up as a kind of a slasher movie, but using um, well, it starts off it's kind of like a, a kind of campus kind of um, 
Jake with, uh, I haven't seen it for a number of years, but uh, a murder game where they go around shooting each other with um, uh, blunt-ended arrows or kind of arrows of those kind of sticky things, the suckers at the end of them. Uh, and then someone goes around, uh, starts killing people with a gun um, sort of rather than the, uh, the thing. So it kind of, it takes a kind of slasher movie set up, but kind of confounds it in its, in its way. But uh, I mean, he went on to, um, uh, I think concurrently with this, he had a, a career, uh, in market research, uh, so he has a website out there which it shows he's he's naturally kind of got a com- comedic touch, so he's kind of perfect for this. Although I would argue that the kind of coda, the the scene after the well not before the credits at the end where he taunts um, Connie, which is very kind of slasher movie esque, you know, pretending to be the the killer coming back from one last scare, and in fact again. Even talking about the screamisms, as as it were, that he actually says at the end of the movie, um, the killer always comes back for one last scare, which again is exactly almost word for word what happens uh, at the end of Scream, and in fact, pretty much at the end of every Scream movie. So, uh, so they were definitely, um, you know, they were definitely had their finger on the pulse, but just to perhaps arguably ten years too early because certainly by um 1986 the slash movie as i mentioned was kind of all but played out as a kind of major box office force uh the days of uh, uh sort of uh, negative pickups by studios like paramount and columbia uh were long gone uh so um but having said that you know i think it was uh, paraphrasing roger corman is uh you know if you want to get started in movie making get a group uh, and attract a group of people young people in the house and bump off one by one you can do it for very little money and um, make uh, big profits and certainly from from everything i read about this this film uh, made a tidy profit mm. and um the character of barney actually is in this scene is just mentioned um jamie lee curtis in halloween which is something they do in scream as well there there's numerous references to jamie lee curtis and they're watching halloween on the television um and of course the assassination game which you just mentioned uh justin was directed by nick castle who's a slasher alumni himself playing the shape in the first halloween exactly i love that sammy has come downstairs wearing the studded collar and and leopard print dressing gown i love this get up and this is merv this is merv griffin's son (laughs) can you imagine him bringing merv to the premiere it's just a shame he's not carrying a bunch of bananas. That would have added added to the touch, I think. So I can guess we should also obviously well, obviously mention uh, Dominic Brassier, the uh, director of this movie. And obviously we're also kind of we're not going to we're, we're aware of all the allegations involved, and none of them are proven in the court of law. But obviously we're not going to delve into them at the moment. We're just going to acknowledge them. But um, obviously his most people will know him from obviously Friday Thirteenth Part Five. Um, as probably, even though he has a tiny little role in that as Joey, the um, the kid who loves chocolate bars a little bit too much, and uh, is, is, whose murder sets off all the all the subsequent killings in Friday Thirteenth Part Five, um, certainly it's a memorable role, isn't it? Uh, so uh, he kind of uh, he uh, was also um, in the kind of another another slasher movie, talking about the slasher movie kind of branching out, playing with fire. Uh, with Sybil Danning was kind of a way of melding the slasher movie with the kind of teen erotic kind of like um, sexy teacher kind of roles, I kind of guess, you know, all those all those um, films that came out like My Tutor and those kind of movies in the uh, kind of um, sort of post-Porky's type movies where an older woman was 
uh, taking a young man in hand, as it were. Um, so he was in that before Friday Thirteenth Part Five, A New Beginning, uh, uh, as Joey, and um, he went on to have a sort of career in a number of other things. He was also in the Once Bit and the Vampire uh, sort of uh, sort of comedy. Um, but uh, he kind of worked with uh, Stephen Bow, um on uh, on this. I think they were friends, and they kind of came. Out. I don't know. I don't. Who was, did it say? Uh, you know, I don't know if any of you read about who was a driving force behind this, whether or not it was uh, Dominic Brascia, uh, Brascia, sorry, that was the, um, the the horror fan, or it was Stephen Bow. It was mutual. From right. the interviews I've seen with them, um, they pretty much mentioned that they both wanted to make a movie together and you know they they originally were going to make one called i think it's two guys from brooklyn but the budget for that was going to be like way too expensive and um you know the obviously slashers were popular in the uh, early 80s especially so you know just kind of go the slasher route and yeah but it, it definitely was a team effort because they both really wanted to i mean i, I did read that um uh, uh, Dominic Brasho wasn't originally going to be the director. I mean, um, <clears throat> he actually went to Stephen Mayo and convinced him to let him direct the film. And of course, that saved them money as well. So, turned out to be a good thing, I, I suppose, budgetary wise. Mm. Well, I mean, interestingly, uh, Brasio was kind of uh, on his uh, website, which is now defunct because uh, he, the actor, well, he he passed away in 2018, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And uh, he uh, he advertised himself as a uh, a director and producer and an actor, um, and he had his own acting workshop. And he claimed to have uh, either acted or coached uh, people such as Robert Downey Jr., Jim Carrey, uh, Michael York, bizarrely, Brian Austin Green, uh, and Casper Van Dien, amongst others. So uh, back in the day, you could have been <laughs> could have been coached by him. The others I can kind of see, but Michael York, that sounds kind of suspicious. I wonder if it, he, he worked with him at some point, maybe rather than coached him, perhaps. But, Possibly. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously he went on to do Hard Rock Nightmare, um, uh, you know, following this uh, fairly sort of quickly. Uh, and uh, he kind of settled into a kind of a, a, a radio career. Uh, which apparently got fired from one by being a bit too Joe-esque, I think, with his uh, co-workers, apparently, uh, and not getting on with them. But uh, he went on to have, a, I think, a fairly successful radio career uh, before his death. So, um, but uh, yeah, and apparently I did read, and it seems a bit unlikely that um, uh, that he was offered a three-deal deal picture um, deal with a major studio. Um, he said he was tired of making horror movies, so he turned that down. You know, this nursery is going to be my favorite room. Yeah, it was Vestron. Um, him and ba- him and Bayo were like offered Vestron, and they turned it down. And then he later regretted it for money's sake. Well, because Vestron, when they offered the three picture deal, they weren't going to pay them for Evil Laugh. Like that was kind of Vestron's deal: is we'll distribute Evil Laugh for free, um, uh, but you know we are going to give you this three picture deal which, you know, they turned down. They also took the film to Trauma, but Trauma wasn't going to give them any money, so they did not go that route either. Trauma, that's um, the last the last people I would assume to be picky about something like this. 
Well, I don't think it was necessarily picky. I think it was just they were watching their money and, you know, they were just like, hey, you know, we can give you distribution, but we're not giving you any money up front. <laughs> well, I'm saying they've, they've wasted their money on lesser efforts, I'd say. Oh, I like trauma movies. <laughs> well, I was going to say, we'd say we haven't mentioned um, Kim McCammy, uh playing Connie here. Now, of course, I mean, she's probably, to a certain section of uh, people watching this, uh, she's probably most recognisable as uh, she went on to be uh, the American uh, adult star Ashlyn Gear. Um, who had distinction of uh, she kind of one of the few start people who went on to uh, working in uh, adult movies uh, that also had a concurrent kind of non-adult career as acting as well. Uh, so she was in she appeared in the sci-fi uh, series The X Files and especially Space Above and Beyond. Um, and uh, so she had as I mentioned before she had like a career. Uh, you know, before her adult uh, career in kind of um, horror B movies such as obviously Evil Laugh, we mentioned Creepazoids and Lunch Meat. Um, she apparently uh, she was incredibly successful. In fact, she's she's probably one of the well, um, she's one of the most successful female adult stars of the nineties. Uh, apparently, she won four acting awards at the apparently what is quoted as the pornographic equivalent of the Oscars. Um, uh, and uh, was uh, nominated, uh, well, uh, awarded Female Performer of the Year. Uh, she um, she also worked, or she was on the um, on I think it's on Vivid uh, label. Uh, she was on. I know she actually worked with her, but she was um, uh, Terry Weigel um, uh, was on there. And if that name uh, rings any bells, uh, she was another actress who did low budget slasher movies before working in uh, adult movies. And she was in uh, Cheerleader Camp. Um, the Ashlyn Gear, well, uh, she originally, when she moved to uh, Los Angeles to pursue a, a career in acting, uh, she actually had a double major communica in communication broadcasting theatre arts. And she said herself that when she moved to LA, she wanted to become a famous movie star. Um, and said that she had no, she being becoming an adult star wasn't on her radar at all. But uh, she said she had no regrets. Now, famously, um, the uh, the end of the movie when there's a shower scene, uh, and this is something that's got often brought up when it, in relation to uh, to Evil Laugh. Uh, she said that um, when she was asked to do a topless sh shower scene, she refused. Uh, and uh, many commentators have sort of pointed out the irony of her then going on to become uh, an adult star. I know that, son. But uh, she, I think she kind of retired from uh, kind of any kind of film work, adult film work or otherwise, in like 2005. And apparently, uh, the irony perhaps is she's now a realtor in Texas. So hopefully, she hasn't got any uh, haunted or or orphanages where mass murders happened 10 years ago on her books. She also worked with uh, Glenn Morgan and James Wong on the 2001 film The One, starring Jet Li. And also she worked with uh, Glenn Morgan again on the remake of Willard, starring opposite uh, Crispin Glover. Did you mention that she was uh, she did body double work for uh, Basic Instinct? Yes, I and think she was the proposal. Yeah, yeah, I think she was the Roxy body double in Basic Instinct because uh, obviously Sharon Stone had no qualms 
with uh, showing her body. But I think the character of Roxy might have been her. Uh, she might have body doubled her, I think. Because they look very, very similar. Yeah, I mean, no judging whatsoever. I mean, at, at all, you know. But it, she's actually, I think she's pretty good in this. And especially yeah. as she, um, as, you know, as the movie goes on, as a final girl, uh, you know, she's uh, she's very credible, I think. I mean, she does go for the gun, like, pretty much immediately. In this scene, I think you can really tell it's a woman as the killer. Well, it's patently obvious, isn't it? Look. No? I th yeah, it was, it's definitely someone, a smaller statue. Wasn't there a similar killing in, um, uh, uh, what's the one set on the Island of Blood? I think there was a machete out the arse in that as well, but I might be wrong. <laughs> Well, there's one in um, Just Before Dawn. Yeah, we've mentioned that. We? I just so, don't remember yeah. a machete me, machete me face to face. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and you know, this is where I start to say that the friendship group is not that friendly because he's basically convincing his buddy here to hit on Connie, who is engaged to be married to another friend of theirs. Mm. And he set him up to humiliate himself as well by rubbing himself. <laughs> now this is going to surprise you guys but I really wasn't familiar with, with this guy's brother Stephen Bayo because I have and you might want to sit down for this never in my life seen an episode of Happy Days or Charles in Charge <laughs> nope <laughs> haven't seen that either yeah come on Eric <laughs> I know I don't know I, I don't know how I managed to avoid Happy Days but you I see, did see Eric um, Joni actually does love Chachi that's the difference <laughs> I know you're going to get that reference. I think being a little bit older, I was kind of a kid in the 70s, so Happy Days was a bit of a firm fixture because in the 70s, if you're old enough to remember, there was like a fascination and a, a trend for everything 50s. Well, there was in the early 80s as well because I was looking at Happy Days. It apparently ran from 1977 to 1984, which would have been sort of, a, you know, round about my time, but uh, I was just more into Incredible Hulk and Wonder Woman. Well, fair enough, but uh, yeah, I mean, there's not a not a massive amount about Stephen Bio on um, online that I could find. I mean, obviously, he uh, you know sort of existed or operated in the shadow of his his more famous brother. Um, but he kind of, I did see that. I mean, it sounds a bit cruel, but it's kind of referenced as being almost famous is an, an, a term I've seen sort of banded around about him. But he did ha he he was an actor and producer, and he kind of. He, uh, he he did appear in a number of movies uh, like The Hunted in 1998 and Very Mean Men in 2000. Um, but uh, the only other thing I could dig up about him was that uh, uh, Miley Cyrus bought his house in North Carolina, or the, the, the Bio family house in uh, uh, 2020. So, uh, but apart from that, he's obviously a very private person. But I think the, um, the obviously kind of like the, uh, you, can, you can tell that fans of Slasher Movie uh, have made this, or certainly people very well versed in the kind of what makes a Slasher Movie work. Well, because of this Blue Balls soliloquy. Well, that was the thing. I actually had to look up Blue Balls. I kind of knew kind of vaguely what it meant, but I didn't realise, um, you know, the what the, you know, the, what that's basically, uh, it's, it's, did you know it's slang for epidemal hypertension? Oh, it's a real thing, is it? Well, that's what, it's, that's what I looked up, and it says it's thought to occur when you get sexually aroused for an extended period of time but don't have an orgasm or ejaculation. 
We're um, we're treading dangerously close to uh, seagulling Nailgun Massacre territory in this conversation. <laughs> the movie brings up blue balls, isn't it? It's not yeah. us. Yeah, but the movie doesn't tell you like specific medical terms for it, Justin. But apparently, it is something that was you know uh, it was a, an old excuse to try and pressure. Yeah, I've just I've just googled it, uh, Justin, and it says also <laughs> it's not dangerous and it's not a reason to pressure a partner into sexual activity. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> I like her bathing suit. These random letters and numbers. Oh yeah, that spotted you could, that. You could argue that was the script for Evil Lab on her <laughs> bathing suit, <laughs> or it's the, our notes for this commentary. <laughs> I was going to mention the um, we talked about the release for the movie, and uh, I found a single review uh, in published in the American newspaper uh, back in 19, uh, 1988 from its when it was re- um, re- released regionally to Baltimore. Uh, and it probably won't come as a shocker. This movie uh, uh, wasn't a hit with the critics. In fact, actually, other places I've looked up, it said it wasn't wasn't screened for critics. Because certainly by this time in the 80s, I mean, we talked about this, and I won't go into most amount of detail on this, but um, we talked about before on commentaries that was that the slasher movie was hated by mainstream critics um, uh, ever since from 1980 onwards, uh, the Friday 13th debacle with um, Siskel and Ebert. <clears throat> and subsequently, um, many uh, critics were particularly confounded and also um, irritated by the fact that... Um, that uh, whatever they said about a slasher movie didn't stop people going to watch it. So there became a kind of vogue amongst um, critics not to, uh, purposely not to review slasher movies. Uh, and of course, it became a sort of something of a rarity for slasher movies to be released, and certainly in the kind of volume they were um, earlier in the decade. But uh, one critic, uh, Lou Cedrone, uh, for The Evening Sun in Baltimore, um, he kind of leads with Evil Laugh is an evil film. Uh, he says it's a cheaply made horror movie uh, that attempts to justify itself by poking fun at the Friday the 13th movies. But it's every bit as objectionable as those films. Uh, he said it's never as brutal as those, uh, and it does have one of the players discuss the mass murders of a group of preschool t- uh, children in loving detail. Um, and he says the producers apparently wanted the viewers to enjoy the bloodshed secondhand. Uh, he continues, there's no one you'll recognise in this film, but they don't, you re- don't really want to know them. Most of the actors play interns who spend the weekend in the empty home. One of them intends to buy. Their heads are empty too. Uh, he finishes off by saying, though a very easy process of elimination, you can guess the identity of the murderer who wears a hockey mask while at work. The producer should have given them uh, to everyone in the film. Uh, Evil Laugh is showing at local theatres. Those people who enjoy the bloodshed in Friday the 13th will enjoy this too. This one is never as uh, this one is never as slick as the Friday the 13th films, but the people who like those films won't care about that. So again, not a rave review for Evil Laugh, um, but uh, at least you reviewed it because a lot of the newspapers by this point were just simply refusing to review slash movies. It also got a review in Variety. Um, did you see that one? Uh, I'm not sure if I did, actually. 
Yeah, it says, um, title refers to the cackle of a mass killer preying on a bevy of young med students and interns who spend the weekend at an abandoned orphanage. Kids are there to fix up the place for Jerry, who's planning to buy it and refurbish the facility, but he's killed in the first reel. While the youngsters party, the killer picks them off. Identity of the Fiend is linked to a murderous event there 10 years ago. Attempts at black humor, including unwitting cannibalism, are ineffectual as filmmakers Bracia and Bayo emphasize a wise guy character who keeps commenting on events resembling things happening in Friday the 13th or Halloween films. Most viewers will be well aware of the genre cliches without prompting. Gore effects emphasize plenty of hemoglobin finale involving heroine Kim McCamey is rather silly. Okay, well I found a review as well in the video movie guide written by um, Mick Martin and Marsha um, Porter and uh, they rate their films on a scale of one star to five star and there is a rating below one star which is a symbol of a turkey and that's exactly the rating they give to um, Evil Laugh. They say hack writing and an uninspired ending deliver this film into the halls of loserdom. Now on the same page as uh, Evil Laugh they give their reviews of Exorcist to the Heretic, uh, Evil Speak and Eyeball which are all films I love, and they all get a turkey as well. Well, they sound like a bunch of turkeys. Yeah, they sound like lots of fun. <laughs> like, I just always wondered here with the axe death, like, how did she think that was a joke? I mean, that would be very talented if you could make a prank where you literally slam an axe into someone's head. Come on, cut it out. Yeah. Uh, right in front of someone else. I'm sure David Blaine could probably do it. It's interesting, this scene that we're looking at here, because we mentioned the similarities similarities to Scream. Um, this is kind of similar to Scary Movie when Shannon Elizabeth gets killed, which was kind of that spoof on Scream. Where she's like, oh, no, don't kill me. <laughs> and she thinks it's a joke. If you're discussing Scary Movie, also the hand on the butt scene is in Scary Movie as well. In a different context. Yeah, that's true. Well, it's kind of the, um, I mean, the Rose McGowan death scene in Scream is very much like that, isn't it? She's kind of taunting or, you know, or Mr. Killer, don't kill me type thing. So, again, it just seems, I don't know, you know, sometimes there there are coincidences in life. It just seems a big coincidence that, uh, uh, you know, the, the scenes are so similar. One thing I forgot to mention about um, Hard Rock Nightmare, which is the film they made after this, is that there's a scene in that where one of the characters starts going and and saying, oh, this is just like in a Friday the 13th movie, they say. So um, they recycled that little bit in their subsequent movie. Now, apparently, I was reading. They said that that like because a lot of people raise their eyes. I don't know why. Well, because oh, a microwave doesn't work if you open the door. Um, but apparently, they said that there was an insert shot where they show the the killer jamming a screwdriver into the door mechanism of the 
microwave, which means he could switch it on while the door was open, or something along those lines anyway, but uh, it wasn't included in the final print. But I, I, you know, we're watching Eva laugh. I don't think it matters that it's defying logic. The, the logic well, the of microwaves. Has a, yeah, the microwave has a Faraday shield, so it's still not going to work even if he jams the uh, screwdriver in there. Oh, right, okay. But it's, it's, it's nice of them to um, at least try to explain it. I'm actually kind of glad they didn't include it. Mm. I, it's just a, it's a really funny death scene because you know it's it's basically cooking his brain so he goes back into being a little kid at one point yeah he's regressing it kind of reminds me of um uh flash gordon where topol is getting his brain fried by ming the merciless no no flash gordon fans okay. no what no. other movies feature <laughs> microwave death scenes Urban Legend and the Willies kill a dog in a microwave, which uh, Urban Legend severed, again isn't there a connected heads, to the screen series. Yeah. Isn't there a severed head in a microwave in the Superstition? It is yes, my favorite microwave is. death. Yeah, the exploding severed head in uh, the 1982 mm-hmm. movie. So uh, that microwave death scene was very bloody, and I don't remember it being that bloody on the old uh, VHS release. Do you guys remember that much blood? Because I don't. It did seem, ex- yeah, it did seem excessive to me also, yeah. Mm. yeah. Interesting about that video release from Celebrity Video. Um, I don't know how what what it's going to be like once this Blu-ray Blu- is released, but, um, uh, you know, back in the day, if you're a VHS collector, that tape would go for upwards of $300 on eBay. So if you have that copy, you should probably hold on to it. This is like Friday the 13th as well. It is, it is. It reminds me of the what is going on scene in, in Friday the 13th. Are you guys okay? I did find one kind of positive review or relatively positive review of um, uh, of the, the film. In, what, at, uh, Nathan, at NathanJohnson.com? <laughs> no. Yes. No, it was in uh, Legacy of Blood, which is a kind of uh, the slasher movie by Jim Harper, which is definitely worth picking up if you, you haven't. I think it's published maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and uh, he he kind of I mean he's one of the few critics who kind of who tapped into the kind of the, the you know what they were trying to do with this uh, and was more charitable and got in the it's kind of just basically it's a kind of film you have to get into the mood with it you have to you know sort of um, to appreciate its kind of cheesy charms and go with it uh, and he actually called Evil Laugh as one of the more entertaining low budget efforts of the mid eighties. Uh, he said the plot is a kind of standard 80s slasher stuff, but with plenty of Breakfast Club style bonding along the way and the usual sub porky gags. Um, but he says it's cheesy enough to be fun. Uh, the death scenes are even implausible or, sm- or smattered with over the top gore, and sometimes uh, both. Uh, and he, he also notices that a scene that should remind viewers of a very similar one in Scary Movie. Uh, but he says to finish that it's, on the whole, it's just corny fun. Uh, with the occasional laugh along the way, hardly bothering to be suspenseful or original, uh, and says definitely one for those alcohol-fueled video nights, which I can concur. I think the only thing I might have changed uh, personally, and this could have just been for budgetary reasons, but I would have—I think I would have had like more of a chase sequence throughout the house. I think that would have been a lot of fun. Yeah, it seems like the it seems like the mid like mid to late eighties slashers they nixed the chase scene entirely and focused more on the gore or the the comedy aspect. And I think that's missing from a lot of these films. You know, you, the films like um, obviously Friday the Thirteenth Part Two has that fantastic chase scene in Prom Night, but 
they just seem to be missing from a lot of these um, uh, these these mid these mid uh, mid uh, mid decade efforts, and it kind of gives them kind of a blandness. I mean, I'm I'm not disparaging the film, but yeah, you're right. This I don't know. I just wanted to see someone run for their life, and that's that's as big a staple as any as the gore, in my opinion. Do you think it's? I mean, not to do the uh, the makers here any injustice, injustice, but do you think it's kind of to do? It's probably actually quite hard to film a, uh, an effective chase sequence. Um, it probably takes quite a lot of skill to put it together, and a lot of equipment, and a lot of dollies, I would imagine. And I imagine they didn't have the budget for something like that. Yeah, and 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 that equals time as well, and they. Uh, you know, they said they only had a seven-day shoot on this. You were saying possibly nine, but either way, it's it's an incredibly short yeah, shooting schedule. Yeah, nine according yeah. to Bracia's website. Yeah, that shot of the magazine on the couch was actually a picture of uh, Joey's death from Friday the Thirteenth Part Five. Yeah, mm. yeah, that's on the cover of that Fango, isn't it? With his arm, kind of. Uh... No, the on the cover is just a picture of the axe with Friday the Thirteenth Part Five, a new beginning written on it but then inside there's the picture of joey yeah with his arm with right. his severed arm resting on his back yeah right you know connie is actually a pretty brave uh final girl because she's kind of going after the killer rather than you know trying to get out of the house which is probably what i would have been doing yeah one other little tidbit i don't know if this was um did you any of you guys read about the um uh, that uh, apparently the the look of the movie was inspired by the godfather <laughs> oh elaborate please well apparently the uh, cinematography is done by someone called Steph or Steve Seeley um, and apparently they were going for they were trying to go for a kind of look um, a visual look of the, of the Godfather uh, and again if that's true I don't know I can't see any evidence of it, of it in here or you know what they were exactly they were going for but uh, yeah there's a little tidbit I, I read which just seemed a bit incongruous but uh, you know it's out there on the interweb so it must be true I mean, this here is the, uh, you know, the again, the slasher stand uh, standby of uh, finding all your dead friends. Oh, very happy birthday to me. Yeah. So here we're coming up to confront- confrontation with the, the killer. I mean, do you have any thoughts about the mask? What is what is the mask? Is it a hockey mask? Yeah, you said in the in the one of the reviews you read out that they said hockey mask, and I was kind of taken aback by that because I didn't view it as a hockey mask, but maybe it is. Well, there's there there are uh, hockey masks that are kind of blue like that and white, but it looks more like it's painted on. It doesn't even look like a mask to me. Yeah, uh, I think it looks like more like a balaclava than a than a sort of hard plastic uh, hockey mask. Why did it? I was just going to ask why the killer wears uh, blue, like, toilet scrubbing gloves. Well, you don't want to get the blood black. on your hands when you're trying to to murder some people. Yeah, but why the blue, the, the toilet scrubbing gr- gloves? Could they not afford a pair of black gloves? I mean, the mask to me looks a bit more like the kind of Mexican wrestling masks, the kind of lucha. Yeah, the luchadora, that's it, yeah. 
So again, what slasher movie? What, you know, what slasher movie worth its salt without uh, the killer explaining their motivation at the end of the movie? So we find out that uh, this actress, who I can find nothing about, is it Susan Grant. Um, yeah. There was like nothing. I think, unfortunately, the name is so not ge- generic, but so kind of such a common name, uh, and she's not credited as doing anything else. So maybe she was using a pseudonym. I don't know, but I think she's actually quite a fun. You know, she's a fun character when she's playing that kind of eccentric. Uh, self before this with a bit too much makeup and then you know playing the kind of Mrs Voorhees inspired killer at the end Um, but yeah I just came to a complete dead end when I was trying to find any more information about her so um, I did feel kind of bad for her I mean Martin was done pretty wrong even though they said he wasn't very nice though did Martin die What, what happened to Martin I'm pretty sure he died didn't he didn't he kill himself because didn't they say something about he died, maybe died in a fire in the house? It was something along those lines, wasn't it? Which kind of then seems strange because there was no damage. The house didn't burn down. Can we just talk? I mean, I know this is kind of jumping the gun by like two or three minutes, but can we just talk about the absolute hell that these two characters have been through? And Barney is witness to it. And yet he pulls this very cruel practical joke at the very end here it's a complete 180 by that character it's, it's yeah it, it reminded me of it reminded me of night school that ending with the, the 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 prank in the car it's like they go through absolute hell and they know they've went through absolute hell they should be you know in some kind of a, a trauma session to deal with their their issues but no they're he's pulling practical jokes dealing with murder connie's fiance is dead and he thinks it's appropriate to play a joke at the end on her after that. I'm like, no wonder he gets stabbed with scissors. It was also the idea that uh, Connie then becomes a murderer herself. Well, this is what they were saying in an interview, is that there the, the, the was the possibility of an evil laugh too. Um, you know, and it's, it's, I suppose, is it coincidental that it ends in kind of a similar way to Friday the 13th, A New Beginning? when Dominic Brasquia was uh, featured in both. So, like, passing the evil on. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, you know, originally the ending was the killer laughing and dropping dead. Like, that was going to be the ending. But because um, the powers that be wanted more nudity, um, they kind of tacked this on at the end. So I guess that's kind of why it seems like such a 180 for Barney's characters, because originally it wasn't written that way. Well, maybe the events of the film have driven him so mad that he's gone insane and he thinks this is appropriate behaviour. Possibly. Also, can we just mention Donna Donna Nevada? Yes. (laughs) Not a real name, apparently, but yeah. Yeah, I couldn't find out. I think that was, uh, yeah, that was uh, certainly a pseudonym. But uh, I heard, is this true that um, they hired uh, her as a body double because um, uh, the actress play Connie wouldn't do nudity? Uh, and um, when she got there, she was really hairy, and they had to shave her. They had to shave her boobs. Yeah, <laughs> which I mean, I'm, I did... I'm just repeating what they said. I'm not. I'm. Oh, that's real. That that really happened. Yes, that's what they oh. say. That's what they said. And I didn't think that was possible. I don't know. Yeah, she must have a high testosterone running through her body. Hairy nipples. They said it was very awkward. Yeah, not body shaming, but if you're kind of a, a, a body double for hire, a nude body double for hire, then... A little grooming would be in order before you get to the set, I'd say. Well, I'm like, how would the, you know, the the filmmakers approach it with her? 
sorry you're too hairy. I mean, you got to shave. I'm like, uh, I just don't know. Like, I would be very uncomfortable approaching someone mm. like that. Yeah. Well, I kind of guess it would the the other way. It would have been that everyone would have thought the reason that Connie didn't get naked in the movie is because she had um, hairy breasts. But I don't know. So, uh, mm. but um, but yeah. So we have this kind of very strange, kind of almost slightly nihilistic ending to the movie. I mean, what's the? I mean, from what you read, Eric, was there was it kind of seriousness about uh, Evil Laugh Two? Because obviously the movie made money, and they could have made another one relatively cheaply. I would have thought. Yeah, um, I I didn't get the vibe that it was ever going to to happen. Mm. And like we said, I just could not find what how much money this movie made at all. No, no, I yeah, it's kind of I mean it's certainly by again by the mid eighties we're talking about tropes. Then certainly I mean the Friday Thirteenth movies were up to you know sort of in the sort of number six, number seven, number eight coming out relatively quickly. Uh, so the idea of a sequel to a slash movie certainly wasn't certainly wasn't an original one. Yeah, well, the the film they made after this was kind of a straight-ahead slasher film as well, and if Evil Laugh had, had been a huge success, surely it would have made more sense to do an Evil Laugh 2 than an, another independent um, slasher movie. You know, I would watch the movie where Connie starts killing people. <laughs> yes. It would, fa- it would fail to be a whodunit, though, at that stage. Would that be an issue? Not really, because I don't think this whodunit was very, um, I'm not going to say well done, but just, it was easy to guess who the killer was, I'll say. Hmm. There's one thing that just just occurred to me, of course, there's a very similar um, scene in the opening of The Fun House, Toby Hooper's The Fun House, isn't there? Where the yeah. um, someone's pretending to be a killer, and it turns out to be a, to be a joke. So again, I wonder if that may have been a kind of inspiration for this kind of circular ending is also applied in something like uh, he knows you're alone and uh what was the one with um uh pj souls innocent prey and of course uh halloween four ends in kind of a similarish way and with the pair of scissors well for, uh, coincidentally oh, halloween, yeah well we don't see what happens to him so who knows he may he may have come back for the sequel but halloween four was kind of in is in release uh around the time uh that uh evil Laugh was uh, going to be coming out uh, along with another film, Twisted Nightmare. So, uh, so yeah. So, uh, well, that was uh, Evil Laugh. So, uh, it's kind of say it's it's always a challenge to dig up information about these films. Going back for how many years ago is this now? Coming up, forty year old, forty year old movie. Um, but I hope you've enjoyed uh, this commentary uh, for the uh, well, Evil Laugh. Uh, so it's a film that we've all got a very much soft spot for, and I'm sure if you bought this disc, you do too. So I hope you've enjoyed this commentary. We are collectively The Hysteria Continues, uh, and you can catch us talking about slasher movies on all good and all very, very bad podcatchers out there. So, uh, you know, thank you for listening. And any last words on Evil Laugh? The only thing I'm going to say is I'm overworked and I need a break. (laughs) Kill Nathan. He's upstairs. (laughs) (laughs) I can't, I just can't look at microwave the same ever again. Have you seen microwave massacre? I think I have (laughs) scary. Okay. Well, thank you for listening.